You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Scripture reading is going to be coming from the New Testament, uh, chapter John, or sorry, John, chapter 7, verses 1 through 20. This is about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Give you all a second to turn to that. And when you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God 
or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to thank you for all being here. Uh, the anniversary service, uh, it's an exciting night and very encouraging to me just hear all the good things people are saying, um, that God is at work in our midst. And like Austin said, it's not about us at all. It's about um, the one who works in spite of us. Uh, just like this story of Jesus with these people in John, um, the people in John that are surrounding Jesus are not the best, as you can tell in this story. Um, and yet, they have one in their midst who is a great savior, and, uh, and he pulls people um, out of the darkness. Uh, the whole book of John is about people encountering um, the one who is eternal life. Um, you know, the very famous verse, John 3.16, God so loved the world that whoever believed in his son would have eternal life. Well, eternal life is not just a thing that we get. It's not like a spiritual Red Bull or some kind of gas that passes into us or a substance. It's, it's a relationship. So eternal life is about a relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And he's in this crowd of skeptics and seekers and people who are very hostile to him. And he's talking about faith. And um, from this passage, uh, especially this one verse 17, I think is so critical, um, that faith is not primarily intellectual. I came to faith by reading Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And at the time, I thought it was intellectual primarily, that it was about weighing evidence and uh, investigating arguments, but I've come to believe over time that it's essentially not intellectual, it's relational, because eternal life is relational. It's all about relationships. So um, the, the question is not, is there enough evidence, but do I want to be a certain type of person? Do, do I want to live a certain way? Um, is my will to do the will of the God of the universe? And that's what Jesus says in verse 17. Uh, if you want to do God's will, he doesn't say, if you do God's will, that would be devastating because none of us do. But he says, if you want to do God's will, if you will to do God's will, then you're going to know whether I'm from God and my teaching's from God. And that's the main criteria. Um, if you want uh, glory for yourself, if, if you want to be your own authority and rule your own life, then Jesus is going to seem very implausible as the incarnation of God. He's going to seem like an idiot, like a fool because that's not what he did. He did not seek his own glory. Uh, he did not live for himself. Um, he did exactly the opposite. And if you want a life of glory, uh, glory for other people, where you give yourself away, and you don't seek to be your own authority, um, then there's only one option out there. There's only one person who's ever come to this planet and said they were God and did those things, and that's Jesus. Uh, the only one who ever came and whose glory was actually to give himself completely away. So if you want to do God's Will, you're going to know, you're going to know whether Jesus is God. That if you want a life <clears throat> where you want your own glory, then you're not going to like Jesus. Um, and I think that's the natural human heart. Like, that is our heart. Uh, we are curved in on ourselves, as Martin Luther said. We're, we're creatures uh, who are self-interested. Uh, we 
primarily think about ourselves. Our, our whole worldview kind of revolves around ourselves. And that's the heart <clears throat> that is a, a polluted heart. It's a heart that is uncleansed. It is a heart um, that um, just stuff comes out of it that's really ugly. And that's what Jesus comes to clean. Uh, he comes here uh, to clean our hearts and make us want glory for others. And in the meantime, those of us who do believe we're in this state between the two, where like our natural uh, heart is kind of polluted and all this stuff comes out that we don't like, where we want it to be all about us. But because of the cleansing of the Holy Spirit, uh, we actually, that stuff gets purged. And uh, every day it's this battle where we're fighting uh, to actually live for other people instead of ourselves. So um, first of all, the polluted heart, and then I'm going to talk about the cleansing of the heart. And um, in verse 2, uh, the setting is very important, the Feast of the Booths. It's the, of the three festivals of Israel, this was the fall festival. Um, this is the one where they were um, celebrating uh, the wilderness wanderings of Israel, if you know the book of Exodus and Numbers, where Israel was out in the wilderness and they should have died, but God provided them with uh, food and drink. So it's celebrating that, and so they would all come down to Jerusalem, all the different tribes, all the people living Galilee in the north where Jesus was, uh, Judea in the south, they would all come to Jerusalem, and they would live in tents for a week. I mean, if you were a child, this would have been so fun to see cousins from other parts of Israel and living in a makeshift tent that you made when you got there, like a teepee or a wigwam. And they were living in these tents, and Jerusalem was lit up all night long with these giant 60-foot menorahs. There was light everywhere in Jerusalem. So uh, they would have uh, just celebrations all day, uh, feasting. You slept in a tent with your family all week long. So it would have been an amazing time. And in, in verse 3, his brothers say to Jesus, let's go up so that all your disciples can see your great works. And at first it sounds like they're being really nice. Um, but if you look at verse 5, they clearly are not because they don't believe in him. So actually, I think they're mocking him because in the, in the verse almost right before this, in chapter 6, it says that all of his disciples left him. So he's just lost all of his disciples. And now his brothers are like, uh, yeah, let's go up so all your disciples can see your great works, you know, that you're supposedly doing. Um, verse 4, uh, you're doing all these miracles in secret, so surely you would want the world to see them. And his brothers, I believe, are like Joseph's brothers, um, they're glad that he has lost his glory. Um, they're glad he's been taken down a notch. Probably their, their whole lives, they were probably saying to him, you think you're so perfect. And of course he was perfect, but they might have hated him for it. Putting on airs, pretending to be the Messiah. So anyway, they, they do not like, because of their sibling rivalry, kind of like the brothers of Joseph in the Old Testament who couldn't stand him for being the favorite. The brothers of Jesus didn't like him very much. And Jesus turns down their offer to go down there with them because he knows it's dangerous in Jerusalem. Now, he doesn't lie. He tells them, I'm not going to go with you. But then he does go down in the middle of the week to go down there privately because it's not his time to die. And if he had gone down with them, he would have been killed because it says in verse 2 the Jews were looking to kill him because he's already made them very angry. And in verse 11, it says the religious authorities were all looking for him. And a lot of times it'll just say Jews, and that doesn't mean every Jewish person, that means the religious leaders, like the rabbis or the pastors. They're the ones who are trying to kill him. Uh, they're saying in verse 11, where is he? They're all looking for him. So that's what he didn't go down the very beginning of the feet because he didn't want this to happen. He didn't want to get captured and killed. He had no fear of death, but this was not his time to die, as he tells his brothers. And these religious leaders don't like him because he has threatened their authority. Because he healed a man on the Sabbath, 
And they said, you can't do that. And he said, no, I can do that. I'm always working on the Sabbath with my father. And they're still angry at him for that. And the anger's been building. Their opinion of him has soured over time, as it does. There's always this uh, bias we have towards another person that we begin to impute hostile motives towards us. And that's certainly what they're doing. Throughout this passage and throughout the Gospel of John, their, their view of Jesus deteriorates very rapidly. And now they're shaming anyone who speaks well of Jesus. So their hearts are hardening. In verse 12, uh, one group of people say he's a good man because he is a good man. And then this other group says, no, he's leading people astray. So the religious leader is saying that he's leading people astray because he's leading them astray from their authority. And there's 46 at the very end of the passage, which we didn't read, but if you look down at verse 46, um, even the guards, even the guards of the religious leaders are saying, no one ever spoke like this. And then the religious leaders say to the guards, are you deceived also? In fact, the, uh, the entire city is kind of in a massive culture of fear. I thought about like North Korea, where you can't say certain things. You're being uh, always kind of under surveillance. They've demonized him. And so in verse 13, nobody spoke openly of him. Uh, because they're scared of what the religious leaders will say. And when they finally uh, find Jesus, in the middle of the week, he kind of pops up. It's kind of like a flash mob. He'll just pop up and start doing things, and then he'll go away. And when they finally find him, he's teaching. He's teaching in the temple, and it's so impressive. The teaching is so impressive that they have to uh, acknowledge that. Verse 15, he, how does he know so much? But then they also make fun of his like thick country accent or you know, because he's from Galilee, from the north. So that would have been like the real deep south in America. So he had this kind of accent. And he might not have spoken with perfect grammar. I mean, even though he's a lord, I don't know, he doesn't necessarily have to speak. He probably didn't use a lot of big words. He probably spoke real simple. And um, so he, they say he hasn't been to the right schools. He never, he never went to like a big seminary or anything like that. He didn't go to the right rabbinical schools. And so how does he know so much when he's never even studied at all? And Jesus looks at them in love, and he says, you need to give up this whole charade of your glory and your credentials and, like, who you know and where you went to school and your title. And uh, he says in verse 18, and he, he is so direct uh, and so loving at the same time, you have to imagine him saying these things with this look that you might only know from people who really, really love you, like a mom or a dad or a counselor or a spouse or a child. He says uh, in verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, which is what they're doing. They're speaking on their own authority. They're not speaking on behalf of someone else's authority. They're speaking on their own authority. We all do that all the time. We say these things kind of just uh, off the cuff on our own authority. And he's saying, if you're doing that, you teachers, then you're seeking your own glory. And then he says, after a long pause, and he swallows hard, and he says in verse 19, why are you trying to kill me? And I just can't imagine having someone, like in a really direct, childlike way, say something to you, like, why have you been gossiping about me all week? Something you would never think they could know about your intentions. You know, just, uh, why are you trying to kill me? So direct, so loving. And everyone knows that they are trying to kill him. It's said at the beginning of the passage. They say that just a few verses later. And yet they don't repent. They could have right there just repented and said, you're absolutely right. 
Um, but instead, they defend themselves, they defend their authority, their glory, and they fly into a rage and they attack him. And haven't you ever done that before when somebody caught you in some kind of lie or they said something was true about you that you've been doing and instead of saying you did do that, acknowledging the truth, you actually attack them because you're so hurt and scared and angry. <clears throat> and they fly into a rage. Who's trying to kill you? You're demon-possessed. But haven't you done that before where because you're protecting yourself and your authority and your glory that you attack the one who's just speaking the truth to you in love. And that's the polluted heart where we demonize our opponents to protect ourselves and our authority and our glory and our reputation, our honor, instead of just letting that go. And it's, it's when, you, when you want your enemy to make a mistake, as I'm sure they did, and we're just waiting for him to make a mistake, they're just entrapping him in all these Throughout the Gospel of John, constant entrapment, trying to get him to do certain things or say certain things where they can nail him, like a gotcha. And if you're wanting your enemy to make a mistake so that you can jump on them, that's a really dangerous place to be. That's, that is a sign of a very polluted heart, unchecked. And in politics right now, this is just terrible. And, and the church has got to repent of the way that it's been acting politically, where if you hear something that Biden said or Trump said that was like a gaffe or something terrible and uh, you get really excited like I can't wait to watch that video and you click on the video and it's not quite as bad as you thought and you're like ugh, I wanted that to be worse that's a really dangerous place to be when you want someone to fail like they wanted Jesus to fail to protect their own glory and their own authority then you're in a bad place and that is just rampant in America today and the Christian church has bought into that like, we're the ones who should never be doing that, calling that out. And I do that. Like, I'm not above that. That did happen to me this week. That's why I bring this illustration up. I listened to it. And I was like, that's not that bad, actually. And, uh, and I was disappointed. And so that is the polluted heart. Um, and Jesus comes to clean our hearts. He doesn't just come to, uh, to justify us and say, you're righteous before God. I declare you righteous that's a wonderful thing. Like, I love you. You're fine. There's no condemnation. Uh, that's a wonderful thing. That's called justification. But he also comes to actually clean out our hearts. So once we're justified, then he starts this long process of cleaning us out. And that's when you begin to want glory for other people. That's really, really hard. It's really, really rare. So Jesus, after he teaches, uh, and they make fun of his learning or lack of learning, he just suddenly, uh, he disappears. He's like Gandalf, where you never know when Gandalf's going to show up in Lord of the Rings. You know, he'll be gone for a long time, and then suddenly there he is in the forest of Fangorn, or riding down the hill to Helm's Deep. You never quite know when Jesus is going to pop up. And this is where he pops up. Uh, the last and greatest day of the feast, verse 37. So if you, have a, if you have a Bible, look at 37, or just trust me, that's what it, this is what it says. Same chapter, later on, still the Feast of the Booths, now it's not the middle of the week. Now we're at the end of the week. Verse 37, the last and greatest day of the feast was the day they celebrated God's gift of water in the desert, the cleansing water at the pool of Siloam. And what would happen is the high priest would go down, the great procession behind him, and he had this huge uh, jar of water, giant jar of water, and he would fill it up in the pool of Siloam. And the reason they did it there is because that was this wonderful cold underground like rushing stream beneath Jerusalem that was a it was a fresh spring 
So it was this wonderful, fresh, clean water, the Pool of Siloam. And he would take that huge flagon of water, and he would walk up to the temple, and there would be trumpets blasting on either side of him. There would be palms waving and choir singing and people joyfully dancing around. And somebody said, there's, there's some uh, in the Mishnah, it says, there was no joy like the joy of the water cleaning festival. This was the last and greatest day of the feast they did this. So the high priest, you've got to imagine him walking up to the altar. Here's the altar. He has the huge thing of water. And then every, there's a huge a hush comes over this giant crowd. Like everybody's gathered in the temple. And he pours it out, all the water on the altar, to, to show the cleansing of the altar, the forgiveness of God's people, the provision of water in the desert. And at that moment, Jesus just leaps out from behind a pillar or something. He just runs up. He just hijacks the entire ceremony. It would be like if somebody during the inauguration just came out of the crowd and got the microphone. Uh, he, he runs up, and then he, like, cries out. It's a really strong Greek word, uh, like the sound of a, of a crow, like really loud, like a bunch of crows calling out. He cries out. And verse 37, he says, If anyone thirsts, and here's the water going over the altar, If anyone thirsts, come to me. And out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I mean, that's, that, that is either a crazy man, he's either absolutely crazy, or he's really deceptive and incredibly evil, because that would be really evil. Uh, hopefully he was crazy if he wasn't God, but if he, he's either crazy, or he's evil, or he's actually God. But he wasn't like a good moral teacher. He did these crazy things. Like, the, the family thought he was crazy. The rabbis thought he was evil. And, and he says things, that's because he says things like this. Like, you really have to make sense of Jesus as one of those three things. He, he is not a great moral teacher. Um, he promises that if you come to him, this little uneducated carpenter who has almost no disciples, and he says, uh, if you come to me, there will be such a torrent of inner cleansing that it will affect those around you. And then out of you, not only will you be cleansed, but from within you will come rivers of living water and will clean people around you. And the phrase rivers of living water is like class five rapids. Uh, there were parts of the Jordan River that had really strong rapids at certain times of the year. And so if you can imagine, if you know about class five rapids, if you've ever been on those, just waves that go way over your head, um, huge amount of white water, that's what he's talking about. Out of, out of the heart of the one who is, comes to Jesus will flow rivers of cleansing water. Living water, living as opposed to stale dead water, like the living water in the pool of Siloam. And he, in verse 39, it says, he said this about the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the one that would come and clean out our hearts. And the cleaning power of the Spirit is entirely relational. Again, remember that eternal life is about relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And it, it purges us of these self-enclosed uh, hearts that are kind of curved in, all about me thinking, that's what the Spirit does. He just comes rushing in and he just purges you of that. In verse 39 it says, the Spirit had not been given. Now he was in the Old Testament a little bit. He did affect people in the Old Testament a little bit. There was some measure of the Spirit, but not the way it's going to be given at Pentecost. So verse 39 says, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And the Father gives the Spirit, who then glorifies the Son, who then gives himself away. So the Father is sending the Spirit, the Spirit is highlighting Jesus, and Jesus is giving himself for us. 
The Trinity, that's, that is what cleansing looks like, is when you enter into that life of constant self-giving love and generosity, where you're thinking about the other and only wanting the best for the other, that's the, that's the cleansing of the torrents of living water from the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus says will happen. And the essence of God's will uh, is giving your life for other people, giving up yourself for other people. You know, the reason that we love um, MLK is because of what he did. Uh, he, he gave everything. He, was, he knew he was going to be assassinated, and yet he kept preaching. Uh, and and that's what, that's, we, love, we love him because he joined in the Jesus revolution. The story of Jesus was his story. And we see things like that, and we, we are drawn to that because Jesus has done this amazing thing where ever since he was glorified, um, we can never get away from that kind of glory. I mean, before he was glorified, Emperors glorified themselves by showing how great they were and how powerful they were, and they would destroy their opponents. Uh, Jesus, his glorification, what he found supremely glorious in his life was when he was crucified. And that's what makes him such a different kind of ruler. And the Holy Spirit, this self-effacing spirit, is just constantly pointing to Jesus. So the Holy Spirit, even though he's one of the three persons of the Trinity, he doesn't draw any attention to himself. He's always pointing it's like the bat signal in Batman where you see the big bat in the sky. He's always like flashing a cross up. And whenever you think about Jesus and whenever you're moved by him, that's the Holy Spirit just purging your heart. It's the Spirit always glorifies the Son. So whenever you're really moved by the Son of God, that's the Holy Spirit in you doing these things. And uh, in particular, that moment where Jesus, uh, like this acrobatic, death-defying feet where he plunges into death for us and is raised to new life. Like that, that movement, that swooping down and going back up, that is the glory of Jesus. Like that's why he came. I mean, there's only been one hero in the history of the world whose supreme glory is to be crucified. I mean, not just die, but the death of the lowest slave, like the most horrific, dehumanizing death possible. And that is what he says was my glory. And if you want to do the will of God, if you want that, then there's only one option out there, and that's Jesus. There's no one else who's claimed that. I mean, they spit on him. They called him a fool. They called him an idiot. They said he had a demon. They said he's leading people astray. And, you know, and what does he do with all that? He doesn't, um, like, cast the cruciatus curse on them. He doesn't make them suffer. He actually suffers himself. Like, he comes and he is crucified. He's the one crucified. He, he gives himself up completely. And I remember the first time I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. And this is before I became a believer. I think the Spirit slowly calls us in. But the first time I, I knew that something weird was happening, I was at the Sound of Music tour, of all things, in Salzburg. And uh, I didn't exactly really want to go there. Um, that was kind of a friend of mine who was traveling with me wanted me to go there. But we were in the church where Maria gets married to Baron von Trapp. And I was listening on my Walkman Sport in 1991, those little yellow Walkman Sports, uh, to Storybook Story and The Princess Bride, which is just a beautiful song by Mark Knopfler, a little guitar song. And I, I was looking at the cross, looking at the church, listening to that song, and I started weeping. And I had really never wept like that before. I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know why I was crying. I did start to think about how I had made fun of my uh, roommate at Wake Forest who was a uh, Christian, he was a Catholic, and I as, a, as an atheist uh, freshman uh, physics major thought I was so smart 
And uh, I would post my test scores on my, uh, around our room, because they were a lot higher than his, and I, I can't believe I did that, but um, at that moment in Salzburg, I was convicted that I had built, I was trying to build my fragile ego, you know, on the back of Don. And, uh, and my craving for attention, and uh, at, the, at the place that, that we were living as students at that time in London, and the jealousy and the pettiness and the spite that I felt, that, like, something brought that to my attention. And it was a wonderful kind of crying. It was, if you've ever experienced that, like that purifying kind of moment, uh, that's the Holy Spirit. And it's, you, you, I mean, you, I, I can't want anything more than that. Like, I can't think of a better thing that could happen to me tonight. Um, even in the Lord's Supper, like sometimes that happens in the Lord's Supper. Maybe if you're on the top of a mountain when you're hiking or uh, I don't, in a car and the music's playing, but those moments where you feel the purification of the Holy Spirit, it affects not just you. The person that was traveling with me felt that because they, they saw I was like red-faced and like just gentler. You know, there was, so, there was a difference. And I want to end by just uh, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who we met back in chapter 3, was the teacher of Israel. So he was the very highest among the rabbis. And in, ver in chapter 3, he comes to Jesus, full of his own glory and his own authority. And he says to Jesus, um, you know, we know that you're, we know you're a teacher. We kind of respect you. Um, and then Jesus just says, you have to be born again. Uh, you're not born again. You're, you're kind of dead. And, and Nicodemus is offended by it. And he's taken aback. And um, that was chapter 3. And now, the more he has watched, I imagine he watched Jesus pretty carefully, like he was following the story, just watching what he did. Because he was offended at first, but he was still intrigued. He didn't just run away. And um, the more he watched Jesus, the more he thought, what, who is this? this? Something strange about this guy. And so when the, the Sanhedrin met at the end of John 7, and they were officially deciding what to do with Jesus, the Sanhedrin was all the Jewish leaders. Um, they were basically saying, he's done. We're going to kill him. We're going to take him out. He's too dangerous. And then Nicodemus says, and he knew that he was risking everything. He knew that he would lose face the second he said this, just to even question this. He says in verse 51, does our law judge a man without giving him a fair hearing? And then they say to him, are you from Galilee also? Are you ignorant? redneck hillbilly so it at the very second he even questions their authority he's done like he's he's persona non grata he's no longer a man who is the teacher of israel but he wanted the will of god and if you want to do the will of god you're going to know whether jesus is the real deal and so later on in the gospels we see that nicodemus risks everything he like spends everything he has to buy spices and embalm the body of jesus and as soon as he identifies with the body of Jesus, then not only is he out of the Sanhedrin, he's like potentially going to be killed. And just think about a time where somebody um, gave themselves for you, even though you might have been an enemy to them. Think about a time where uh, you just experienced shocking grace from someone that you thought was against you, and all of a sudden you realize they love you, and they're doing this thing for you. And that's what's happening at this table. Um, that's what this table is about, where we receive blessing from the one who uh, 
ought to have cursed us. And so on the night that he was betrayed, rejected uh, their creator, that we're human beings, um, when goodness itself came into our presence, we, uh, we wanted to get rid of that thing, <clears throat> we wanted to stamp that out, smash it to bits, we don't want that goodness around here, we don't want someone that frightening in his self-giving and love. It was on that night when we were at our very worst that uh, he did his greatest thing, and he said, uh, I'm going to give my body for you. I'm breaking my body for you. And I'm doing it intentionally, and I'm doing that knowing what you're going to do to me. I'm not surprised at all about what you're going to do to me. And I want you to know that before you do that, I love you anyway. I love you. You're never going to know I love you any more than when you see me pouring out my blood for you. Intentionally, of my own will, I lay down my life, he said. That way we would know that he did it. Uh, be, he, he knew what we were going to do, and he still did it. So at your lowest moment in life is when you most realize how much he loves you. And that's what we celebrate at this table. So um, I'm going to pray for us. And as I pray, the people serving with me can come over here. And uh, then I'll give you more instructions about this table. Uh, Father, glorify your son through your spirit. Give us your spirit, Father, so that he can glorify uh, your uh, crucified son who gave up everything for us. Help us to realize that the essence of reality is the three-person God giving uh, themselves for one another, for the world. That this world is just a, the overflow of the three uh, in perpetual, uh, generous delight in the other glorifying the other. I pray we would feel that tonight at this table. Give us those tears of purification, Lord, tonight. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember, we love these rascals.